Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. So we have been thinking a little bit about what it is that we believe. We've covered a whole range of different topics. I want to jump straight in today uh, to our next topic, which is the doctrine of the church. We believe in the church. And today I want to spend a little bit of time talking with you about what exactly it is that we believe about the church. One quick caveat up front before we jump in. Um, the doctrine of the church is one that could be approached from a whole range of different angles and perspectives. Uh, in a sense, this is true of every Christian doctrine. But with other Christian doctrines, there are, in systematic theology, fairly well-established lines of approach or uh, angles from which those topics or loci could be considered. With the doctrine of the church, uh, it seems to me at least um, that across the theological literature, there are many, many, many different ways in which uh, that this doctrine has been approached. And uh, that's not to say they're all equally good and helpful. It may be the case, however, that if you've thought about this topic before, you've thought about it from a different perspective. Uh, please don't infer from that necessarily that I'm saying anything radically different from what you've heard already, though I might be saying some different things. Um, certainly, I might be coming at things from a slightly different perspective from what you may have heard before, and perhaps that will be all to the good. It's always worth looking at the same things from different angles. So um, what I'd like to talk about, I want to talk about um, our worship. I want to talk about the life of Christians as members of the family of the church. I want to talk about some of the challenges that we are likely to face as a church community, especially challenges associated with growth, which is what we anticipate and indeed what we've certainly seen here at All Saints in recent months. God be praised. We've seen tremendous growth that brings challenges of all kinds. Before we um, jump into those things, though, let me just say a word or two about what the church is fundamentally, what it is that we mean when we talk about the church. It's a very hackneyed thing to say that the church is not a building, a church is people, uh, but hackneyed though it is, it's absolutely true. And it's important to, perhaps to explore for a minute or two what's so significant about that affirmation. The church is fundamentally that community of people with whom God is in relationship through Christ by the Spirit and in and through whom he's working out his purposes in the world for the sake of the world. Uh, that's not supposed to be a definition of the church that excludes other definitions, but rather a description which is fairly comprehensive and I hope fairly bombproof and uncontroversial. What this helpfully does, of course, is to uh, link what we're going to say about the church to some of the other things that we've been talking about so far. So, for example, if you think back to the first episode in this series, when I gave you that overview of covenant history. Well, you can readily see then that that overview of what God is doing in history as narrated in the scriptures from Genesis through to Revelation is actually a history of the church. It's a history of a community of people that grows and changes over time, whose relationship with God is initiated and then develops and is enriched over time. And it climaxes, of course, in that the relationship we have with God through Christ by the Spirit under the New Covenant. Uh, this basically, though, the story of the church. That's what, that's what that community is. In fact, interestingly, that theological reality is reflected in some of the terms that are used. It's not just in the New Testament that the word church is used to describe that community of people. I mean, it might be in your English Bibles, and that's where the word is used. But the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament uses the term ecclesia, which we customarily translate church. Um, you talk about ecclesial theology, meaning the doctrine of the church. Ecclesia is the Greek word for church. Well, that, that word is used to describe the assembly of the Israelites around Mount Sinai in Exodus 
19 and 20. Uh, the church in the wilderness is that community of people, that assembly, that congregation there. Sometimes it's translated congregation. Now, actually, I've sometimes thought the congregation would be a more helpful word for it in the New Testament because it will serve to focus our attention on the fact that it's people we're talking about. We've seen the same sort of thing for those of you who've been at Wednesday night Bible study, the book of Ephesians. We've been looking at it Wednesday night. Um, you will recall it tells the it describes God's plan to bring all things together, men and women, slave and free, male and female, uh, old and young, uh, of every nation, together under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ, chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then in Ephesians 4 to 6, what you've got is a description of how that plan is being worked out in and through the church. That is, it is the church, the community of the people of God, in whom God's plan to unite men and women, boys and girls, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, under the rule of Christ, is being seen and manifested. God's plan is being shown in and being fulfilled in the church. You start to see how different parts of scripture shed light on this in different ways. Right, so what does that mean? Well, it immediately gives a bit of context to some of the other things we've talked about in this little mini-series of podcasts for a start. So we've talked about the doctrine of salvation. It would be very easy to misconstrue the doctrine of salvation as a series of affirmations about individual people. You know, Johnny or Jenny must put their trust in Jesus, and if they put their trust in Jesus and repent and uh, and start to follow Jesus, they'll be saved uh, by faith in him, by grace, uh, by the grace of God. And they'll be filled with the Spirit and equipped to follow Jesus as individuals. Well, that's true just about, uh, though it's something of a simplification. But it gets to the point of being a distortion as soon as you start to see it in the light of the doctrine of the church. Because what that reminds us is Johnny and Jenny are not saved as isolated individuals. We shouldn't think of salvation as being detached from the church. We certainly shouldn't think, and this is more, perhaps a more common misunderstanding of the church where people will talk about the church as being really really important to us in the same kind of way that uh, you know a golf club or a, uh, a gym are important if you want to get better at golf or if you want to get fitter so you have your personal goals to decrease your golf handicap or um, lose a few pounds or gain a little bit of muscle or something whatever it is you have your personal goals and the golf club and the gym exist for you to kind of buy into and they help you with your personal goals that is not how we should conceive of the doctrine of salvation and of our relationship with Christ at all. The church does not exist as some kind of extraneous thing, which is a community that we could buy into because it helps us with our personal goals of being saved. That's not it at all. Rather, we should think of being saved and being a member of the family of the church as one and the same thing. It's not that this helps me to achieve my goals. It's this is the community in and through which I am experiencing what it means to be saved. Can you see the difference? Um, it, there's a link also then to eschatology. We talked about eschatology as the unfolding history of God's plan uh, in the world. Well, clearly then, the, the church has a central place in Christian eschatology. It's in and through the work of the church that God's plan is uh, take shape and indeed that the, the larger structures of human society start to become influenced and I'll share a little bit more about that uh, if you in just a couple of moments. Uh, there's a link to the family. If we if we think of um, uh, what we talked about when we were speaking of the family a couple of weeks ago and we remarked uh, that um, God's promises to his people 
extend also to their children. God promises to be God, not just to us, but to our kids. Genesis 17, you see some of the things in Acts 2 and so on and so forth. Well, what that means then is that we're going to be, if we're parents and you've got children, then you're bringing up your children as members of the family of God. Well, they need to play a full life, a full part in the life of the church as well. If they're members of God's family, they need to be worshipping with us in church. It's from this that flows, it's from this that our convictions flow about the place of kids in our worship service. We want kids in our service as part of the family, learning to worship God. We don't want them dispatched to some kind of childcare facility where they can sit on beanbags and play board games with each other and colour in Bible pictures. They can do that at home. Sitting on beanbags is great. Colouring in Bible pictures is great if you're four years old and that's what you like to do. That's fantastic. But the family of God comes to church to worship God. And young children need to be trained in that discipline of worship and learn to experience and enjoy that. And wonderfully, that's what you see, actually, if, if kids are raised in a tradition uh, like what by God, God's grace we've inherited here at All Saints, where they learn to worship God as they grow up. It is something that they enjoy to do, and it's fantastic to see it. Uh, they're welcome at the Lord's table because, well, just as the kids were welcome at the Passover meal in the in Old Covenant Israelite days, so also they're welcome at the New Covenant Passover meal if they're baptised and in Christian families. So all these aspects of the life of Christian families is then reflected in how we do church and what we think about church. So you can start to see how the identity of the church as the people of God coheres with those other doctrinal loci. Okay, so now let's just think a little bit about um, worship and the church's worship and why this is so important. Because after all, people talk about going to church as a thing, and actually this is not a, a usage which we have resisted stridently at All Saints. Um, uh, you might think that um, if the church is the community, we shouldn't talk about going to church, but rather we're being the church or something. And there's something, um, maybe there's something in that, but, 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 um, actually, there's something extremely valuable about talking in this way, going to church on the Lord's Day, because what we do on the Lord's Day is of paradigmatic and monumental significance for the whole of our lives, not just on Sunday mornings between 11 and uh, 12.25 or whenever it is, but the other 160 odd hours of the week as well. And I want to explain a little bit about why that is and what scripture says about the place of worship on the Lord's day in the whole of our lives and in the, the way that society is shaped more broadly. I hinted at that a couple of minutes ago. So let me talk about that a little bit. First, I want you to forget all about the church. And I want you just to think in broader uh, conceptual theological terms and in biblical terms along the lines I want to explain to you now. Think, uh, if you would, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Where's he going with this? Don't worry, I'll show you where I'm going with this. Think all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. What you remember happened in Genesis chapter 3 was the first great sin when Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden by eating the fruit that they were told not to eat. When I want to confuse theological students, I sometimes ask them, how many falls are there in the early chapters of Genesis? And of course, they all answer one. And that's not actually the correct answer. As um, you'll have read this, if you've read um, Jim Jordan's material in, I think it's Through New Eyes, or maybe it's elsewhere as well. Uh, Jim and uh, actually numerous others now have highlighted that that's the first of three significant falls, three significant sins in the early chapters of Genesis. The first sin Adam and Eve in the garden, the sanctuary, the holy place where God dwells, and the sin is directed against God the Father. 
The second sin occurs in the land in chapter 4, and it's a sin which, though it is a transgression against the law of God, involves relationships horizontally between brothers. It's Cain's murder of Abel. Two sins. Sin number one, in the garden sanctuary where God dwells, directed principally against the Father, God. Second sin, in the land outside the garden, a different geographical zone, a sin which, though it concerns God, like all sins do, is directed principally against the brother, horizontal relationships. That's the second sin. Where's the third sin? The third sin comes in Genesis 6. And yeah, there's all kinds of confusion about what the sin involves, but the sin is the sons of God and the daughters of men. And to cut an extremely long story short or shorter, this is a sin, the nature of which, though it again involves uh, relationship with God, is directed principally at people in the world outside the community of the people of God. It is the sons of God and the daughters of men. So you've got three great sins. Sin number one, in the garden sanctuary where God dwells, directed principally against God. The second sin, in the land outside the garden, directed principally between brothers, Cain and Abel. Then you've got a third sin, in the world outside the land, look carefully at the geography in Genesis 4, you'll see what I mean. Third sin, in the land, in, Genesis, in the world, sorry, in Genesis 6, directed principally at those outside the community of the people of God. Garden, land, world. God, brother, brother, relationship with the world. Now, those three geographical zones and three sets of relationships appear in that order very significantly there and elsewhere throughout the Bible. And in that first instance, what happens immediately after that third and final sin is that that world is put to an end and destroyed in the waters of the flood. So you have three sins, garden, land, world, and then the world is put to dust, is is, uh, put to the sword or deluged or destroyed, and the Lord starts again with a new creation. And you see this pattern appearing again elsewhere in scripture where you have three sins, garden, land, world, and then you have something like a, a new beginning. You get it in 1 Samuel 14, uh, 13 through 16, where Saul commits um, three great sins. The first sin is a sanctuary sin, is an unlawful sacrifice, chapter 13. Then the second sin, it's chapter 14. It's the sin uh, against his Israelite brothers with the rash vow about you shouldn't eat and so on. And then his, his, uh, his son Jonathan eats and and then they get in an argument and he swears to put him to death and so on. And then finally, you have a sin in chapter 15, which is a sin in relationship to the people outside the community of the people of God, the Amalekites. It's his refusal to put the Amalekites to death. So you've got three sins again, garden, sanctuary, sacrifice, relationship with God, land, brother, horizontal relationships within the community of the people of God. And then in the world, Amalekites chapter 15. And then what happens after that? You've got the three sins, you're expecting the world to be destroyed, as indeed it is, the lowercase w world, because Saul is told then at the beginning of chapter 16, your reign is finished, it's over. And that's when you get the appointment of King David or the identification of King David. So David, of course, is going to replace Saul. So what have you got going on here? Three sins, garden, land, world, and then the world is brought to an end. This pattern is repeated in numerous places in scripture. It seems to be that what's going on is that sin begins in the sanctuary, in relationship with God. 
And once that relationship with God has gone wrong, then that tends to pollute relationships horizontally among the people of God. Think Cain and Abel, or Jonathan and his father Saul, and Saul and the Israelites. And then once that relationship has gone wrong, the relationship between the people of God and the world goes to blazes. And once that's gone wrong, what the Lord has to do is to start again, a new creation or a new beginning of some kind. So, you see what's going on. That's how sin propagates in the world and how it affects and infects broader human societies. Now, there's many other places I could have shown you this, and I'm not going to speak yet. It would take far too long to, to go through every single example. But what's significant about this for our purposes is that the same process works the other way around. And you see this, the most uh, striking example to my mind is in the Gospel of John, where, I just, just turn with me to the Gospel of John, you've got John chapter 2, um, where you have um, the wedding at Cana, where Jesus doesn't sin in the sanctuary in relationship to his father. No, 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 quite the contrary. He restores the sanctuary, the relationship between humanity and God our Father by his cleansing of the temple. So here, the first relationship that is put right in John chapter 2, the relationship between man and God. What's the second relationship that is challenged and then put right? Well, it's chapter 3, it's Nicodemus and Jesus, where Jesus confronts his brother, Israelite, Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, the representative man of the people of God, and tells him you need to be born again. So, relationship with God, temple. Relationship between brothers, Jesus and Nicodemus, chapter 3. What are you going to find in chapter 4? Who does Jesus enter a conversation with in John chapter 4? Of course, it's the woman from Samaria, the outsider. And in all three cases, whereas in Genesis and in 1 Samuel and elsewhere in Scripture, you find a series of sins which leads to the destruction of the world, what you find in John 2, 3, 4 is a series of acts of righteousness that lead to the renewal of the world. Relationship with God re-established in the temple sanctuary. Relationship between brothers then established and put on a, on a right footing um, in chapter, John chapter 3. Relationship with the world, uh, between the world and the church, then re-established and put on a right footing, like in John chapter 4. Now, that's a 10-minute excursus nearly into some fairly esoteric-sounding biblical typology and patterns. Why is that so significant? Well, why it's significant is because it tells us why the worship of the church is so very significant for the way in which God brings about his purposes in the world. Think of how the pattern goes, whether in the case of sin and the destruction of the world or righteousness and the rebuilding of the world. The pattern is the same. Garden, sanctuary, relationship with God horizontal, brother-brother within the community, and then the outside world. That's the order in which things take place. And so if we wanted to see um, God at work in the world to bring about his purposes, well, where would we start? What would we have to do first? And the answer, I take it, should be obvious. What we'd want to do is to start with the renewal of our relationship with the living God in the sanctuary. And that is precisely what is going on when we gather for church, when we come to church 
in order to worship the living God. Let me just turn you to one text that highlights this quite significantly. Um, uh, think about Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, here, um, uh, the author of Hebrews um, contrasts the assembly around uh, the mountain under the old covenant, Mount Sinai, with the heavenly assembly in which we are involved as members of the church, the people of God, when we gather for worship. He says in uh, Hebrews 12, um, chapter, verses uh, 18 to 21, he talks about the old covenant gathering, assembly, church. I already mentioned, haven't I, that the word ecclesia or church is used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament to describe what happens here. And he says, this isn't where you've come. You've not come to the mountain that can be touched and a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words spoke and the hearers begged that no further words be spoken to them. You've not come to Mount Sinai. And that was pretty terrifying. Where have you come? Now, interesting contrast. Mount Sinai was a holy sanctuary mountain. It's a place where God's presence was found. It's a place where the trumpets roared and where God's word was spoken and where people had communion with and fellowship with the living God. You've not come there, the author of Hebrews says to his Christian hearers. Where have you come? Well, you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have come to a new sanctuary in worship. That's what Christian worship is. Christian worship is our approach to the heavenly sanctuary by faith, when we gather together. And you actually see this even in um, the, the structure of our liturgy, where we say, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. I've talked about this in previous um, episodes, daily devotion episodes, about last year or so. Go back and I think the episodes are on the church website. If you want to dig them up, you can find them. But there I talked about what is happening by faith in our worship, where we lift up our hearts to the living God and we are seated by faith or standing by faith or kneeling by faith around his heavenly throne to worship him there. The difference between old covenant worship and new covenant worship is not the difference between, well, there they had a sanctuary and a holy place and now we don't. That's not the difference at all. The difference is that there they had a sanctuary and a holy place on earth around which they were gathered. Here we have a sanctuary and a holy place in heaven around which we're gathered. There they gathered by sight on earth. Here we gather by faith around the throne of God in heaven. Now, what that means is our worship is, if you like, the starting point of that process of renewing all those relationships which God is in the business of putting right throughout human history. Remember um, how we talked about what the church is. I can't remember the exact words I used, but the gist of it was um, the church is that community of people in and through whom God is working out his purposes throughout the whole of human history. So how is he going to be doing that? Well, the first thing he needs to do, like in John chapter two, the first thing that needs to be put right by Jesus, our elder brother, is our relationship with God the Father. That's the first thing that needs to be put right. And then what happens after that? Well, after that, you get a renewal of relationships within the community of the people. And 
uh, renewal of relationship between the church and the world as the call of the gospel goes out into the world, calling people to faith in Christ, calling people to lay down their lives to him, calling them indeed to uh, reshape the structures of their lives and their businesses and the and whatever else that they're involved in, in public life and anywhere else, in line with the teaching of the word of God in scripture. And it begins with the worship of the living God in the gathered community as we gather around that heavenly sanctuary. So what that naturally leads us on to, and I'm going to just talk very, very briefly about this, perhaps we'll talk about it a little bit more on another occasion, is what we should anticipate about, first, those relationships within the community of the people of God, and then what we should anticipate about those relationships with the outside world. First, about um, the community of the people of God. Scripture says that God, by his Spirit, is at work in the church, the community of the people of God, through its members by giving them gifts to serve one another. You find this uh, and there are half a dozen places or so in the New Testament where there are lists of spiritual gifts, so-called, that God has given to his church. You've got First Peter 5, you've got 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, you've got Romans 12, you've got, first, um, uh, you've got Ephesians 4. And in all of them, uh, what is emphasized in different ways is that God has given to these different people, all of us within the church, capacities to lay down our lives and our talents, our abilities in service of one another. And sometimes these uh, gifts are listed and particular directions are given about their use. I want to just highlight a couple of things. First in 1 Peter 5, uh, 1 Peter 5.10, I think, um, whoever has received a gift, let him use it. We do not have the option of coming to church to consume and not to give, not to serve, not to lay down our lives for one another. Whoever has received the gift, and scripture says everyone has some gift or other, 1 Corinthians 12, let him use it. And so our responsibility, our non-negotiable responsibility as members of the church is to be seeking to find ways to serve one another in all kinds of different ways, whether on Sunday morning for an hour and a half we're here, or more likely, frankly, in all kinds of other different ways in which we're seeking to serve our community as a church and reach out beyond our walls um, during the week. Um, second thing to highlight in connection with these gifts um, uh, is uh, really it emerges from the, the logic of the longest single passage about so-called spiritual gifts in the whole whole Bible, First um, Corinthians twelve to fourteen. Let me say a word or two about this because it's really significant. These three chapters are all about how these gifts ought to be used and the priorities that ought to shape the way we seek to serve one another, and the logic in the broad scope of it goes something like this. If you think of 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then Paul goes on to explain that there are many different gifts, but they all come from the same Spirit, and no one gift is to be regarded as greater than the others simply because it might be more spectacular or impressive. Indeed, he likens the members of the church to members of a body and says that the the more shameful parts or less impressive parts that we tend to keep hidden, we are treating with special dignity. It's not that we look down on people whose gifts are less spectacular any more than we look up to people whose gifts may be more public or impressive. The point is that everyone has received some kind of capacity or capacities from the Spirit by which we're called to serve one another. Chapter 12. Chapter 13 then says, well, I'll show you the most excellent way, end of chapter 12, 
The priority that ought to govern and dictate our use of all these gifts is love. It's the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. And then what that means in practice is highlighted in chapter 14, where Paul takes two gifts as a kind of paradigmatic example, the gift of tongues, um, speaking in uh, previously unknown and ununderstood languages, and the gift of prophecy, which is in speaking in some kind of way which can be understood. And his point in this first century context is, well, which of these two gifts would I prefer to use? Well, the answer is really simple. I'd prefer to use the one which benefits other people. You know, I, I thank God I speak in tongues more than any of you, he says. But in the church, I would much rather prophesy than speak in tongues because prophecy can be understood by other people. So I'm going to shape the use of my gifts, talents, time, energies, efforts, he says, so that I maximally benefit everybody else. It is not about me. Our gifts for service are not about what I'd like to do, what I enjoy, what I find easy, how I find fulfillment. It is not about any of that. The way that we are to serve is, as I said a moment ago, to lay down our lives in serving one another. You may find yourself called to do all kinds of things that you don't really like to do. That's exactly what we should anticipate from time to time as well as occasionally, praise God, that God shapes us or he shapes our circumstances so that what we're called upon to do is to serve in ways that we truly enjoy or perhaps more that we come to enjoy uh, and be blessed by as we serve. Truth is, um, getting up in the middle of the night to change a baby's diaper or uh, ferrying food around to people who are ill or just had a baby and, and so on, the actual driving through the rush hour traffic isn't particularly enjoyable. Right? The actual getting up in the middle of the night when you're still half asleep isn't particularly enjoyable. It becomes a joy to those who give themselves to it wholeheartedly, seeking earnestly to serve one another. But that's the way around it is. It's not that we go around looking for the nice things to do. Rather, we go around looking for ways to love, to lay down our lives and to maximally benefit other people. Now, I look at my little stopwatch here, and I'm almost out of time, so I'm not going to talk about the final thing that was on my little agenda here, the the uh, topic of uh, challenges of growth. We have got plenty of that at All Saints. By God's grace, we're looking at, for this last year, uh, if the growth continues up to the end of 2021, something like 30% growth in the calendar year 20, uh, 2021, which is wonderful. And we'll bring all kinds of challenges, practical challenges, personal challenges. Uh, and, but we should probably talk about that another time. For now, I think uh, that will do. So until next time, the Lord bless you and bye for now.